Maybe you remember when they told you to line up and color in the lines. <clears throat> they told you to put away those sweets and eat your peas. My sister hated that. They told you to keep quiet, to listen up, to hurry up and wait. Uh, they told you to stop, start, hold on, let go, sit down, shut up, stand up. They told you to obey. And you heard it. You didn't like it. You thought about it. Thought about acting out. Thought about talking back. Thought about resisting. Thought about fighting. Thought about refusing. And then you placed your trust in Jesus. And like those nice people over at Hebrew National, you said, I answer to a higher authority now. They're not the boss of me. Who are they to tell me what to do? And like a three-year-old watching her balloon getting blown up bigger and bigger and bigger, you got more and more excited as this thing called Christianity just looked better and better and better. I'm part of a different kingdom now. I am no longer a slave, but I am free. I've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is a wonderful thing. So I don't have to answer to these authorities anymore. This is awesome. And that's when Peter comes along with this massive needle, and he bursts your balloon. <laughs> Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Hmm. Be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution. I'm not sure how I feel about that. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Well, I'm not a servant, so that doesn't apply to me. Whew, thank goodness. <laughs> Wives, be subject to your own husbands. What is this? Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Do not repay evil for evil. And that's when you turn to Peter and you say, wait a second, guy. I, I, I'm not sure about all of this stuff that you're throwing at me here. I mean, you got to act out, didn't you? I mean, you were the guy that got to fly off the handle to show your anger. You got to lob off an ear here and there. Come on. You got to say whatever it is you needed to say to take the heat off of yourself. Well, what is this? This seems like kind of a double standard here. What is this? Do as I say, not as I do? I'm not sure I like this, Peter. I don't know what Peter would answer, but I, but I imagine it would be something, something like this. You're right. I... I was a broken man, but I experienced Christ's forgiveness, and, and I've been commissioned by him to shepherd and care for his people, and, and that's when I realized that I have a new king, and i got to live my life as if that king is sitting on the throne. Is Christ the Lord seated on the throne of your life? Is he your master? Or has he been reduced to some sort of a quasi-king? He's like a mascot, right? Who's standing there on the sidelines. He's just cheering you on. He sees you. He sees you stumbling and tripping and falling. And he says, oh, it's okay. It's okay. Just get up. Keep going. Rah, 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 you. You can do it. Is that what... Christ has become, or maybe he's more like the fairy king, and he's just kind of floating around. He's going to sprinkle a little pixie dust here and there. If you don't have young girls, you probably don't know what this is, but that's the fairy king, Lord Malory, actually, Lord Malory. Or maybe he's turned into some type of genie king, right? And he's just waiting for that, that little rub, 
with a little rub, and he's waiting to come out. He just wants to answer every little request that you have. Just make your life so wonderful. You know, in some ways, these lesser uh, ideas of Christ as king, they, they, they kind of seem attractive. This sounds pretty good. A mysterious king that exists to serve me? I think I like that. But whatever that is, it's not the biblical view of Christ as king. No, the king, Christ, is the king who rules over his eternal kingdom. The eternal kingdom that Christians have been made a part of. We could probably move on to the next slide. It's disturbing seeing that guy stare at us. <laughs> it's, he's glorious. He's powerful. He's the ruling king that should never be taken for granted. He's not chasing us, or chasing us around with, with bags of goodies for us here to make our lives more comfortable. No, he's the king who's sitting on the throne, and that king must be revered. And that's what the core of these verses that Peter has for us this morning are all about. As we're here on this earth, and enduring all different kinds of difficulty, proclaiming his excellencies to others, Peter calls us to honor Christ the Lord as holy. What does that mean? What does that look like? Would you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to find out. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Would you stand with me as we read from God's word? 1 Peter 3.13 says this, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? And if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. The king is on the throne. That's what the prophet Habakkuk tells us. Habakkuk 2.20 says, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keeps silence before him. Psalm 46, God says, Be still, know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. This is the reality in which Christians live their lives. The king is on the throne. He is reigning. He's ruling. And first and foremost, that reality must be recognized in, in the deepest, innermost parts of those who believe in him. And that's why Peter writes, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Honor him. To honor him, it means to, to respect, it means to regard, it means to revere. We, we show honor when we stand up, when we take off those hats, we put them over our hearts, and the national anthem is sung at a baseball game. We do that because we're, we're saying, this actually matters. This, this has value, what we're doing here. Or, or even when we sing happy birthday. 
to a friend, a family member. We're saying, this person, we're singling them out. They, they have value. They are special. They are important. We celebrate the day that they were born because we're glad that they're here. But Peter here is very, very specific about what we're honoring Christ for here in verse 15. We're honoring him as Lord and as holy. The title Lord makes it clear. He's the boss. He's the master. He's the king. In our, in our hearts, in, our, in the innermost part of ourselves, we are to regard Christ as the king. Remember, once you were not a people, but now you are whose people? God's people. You were running astray. You were living as people of the rebellion, going your own way, doing your own thing. Not anymore. And Peter told us in 2.25, you were straying like sheep. <laughs> That's a pathetic sight. Straying like sheep. But now you've returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. He's the king. He's the one who tells you what to do, where to go, what not to do. Yes, he's the one who's responsible for your well-being, but you've got to realize you belong to him. Is Christ your king? Not only is he Lord and king, but Peter says we're to honor him as holy. And when I get home from work, I, I don't have them on. When I get home from work, I take my sunglasses off. And I set them in a particular place. And I, and I take my backpack off, which has my laptop, and I go and set that in a particular place so, so it won't be disturbed, so they won't get damaged. If you have young kids at home, you know the risk of that. And so I protect them. And in that way, it, I, I make them, in a sense, I make them holy. I'm setting them apart because they have, they have value to me. And, but God's set-apartness, Christ's set-apartness, is about more than just value to us. It's about, it's about his awesomeness. It's about the role that he has. It's about his authority. It's about his perfection. It's about his awareness of every single thing that's going on inside of us. His gaze pierces into that innermost being. It's about his rightful place as our creator, to hold us accountable for everything we say and everything that we do and even the, the thoughts in our head. So in that sense, he, he is holy. He is set apart, and we go, whoa. In that way, the idea of honoring Christ in our hearts, Christ the Lord, the King, as holy, it means to have that sense of, that sense of awe. And that sense of, of reverence, you know, even a healthy fear. Many of us uh, would be a little on the edge if we were introduced to someone who was really, really powerful. Be a little on it. I would be a little intimidated. I'd be a little on edge. But you know, they say the most terrifying thing for most of us is to get up in front of a crowd and to, to speak. And I think that one of the reasons for that, I was thinking about this last week as I was up here in front of you guys, how vulnerable we are when we get up in front of others and we open our mouths. We are incredibly vulnerable. 
We're standing up in front of what we assume are very critical people because we know who we are and we're just assuming they're just like us. When we see someone get up, we go, oh, yeah, uh-huh, yeah, they're doing that wrong. They said that wrong. Joe did this. Joe did that. Jared did this. Jared did that. It's intimidating. They'll be listening to us. They'll be, they'll be evaluating everything that we, we say. They'll be evaluating our, our appearance. They'll be wondering if, if something's starting to drip out of, out of different parts of our bodies and, and, and whether or not sweat is forming on our foreheads. Maybe he's really nervous. I think he's really nervous. We're afraid of people, people who are not holy. They're just like us, and yet we're intimidated by them. How much more should we be in absolute fear and dread knowing that every moment we're living before the face of God? Isaiah 8.13 says, But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy, let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. That's a picture of God that is not very popular in our world today. Yes, there are rulers. Yes, there are authorities. There's presidents. There's teachers. There's bosses. Even even parents might be intimidating to us. But Peter is saying, above all, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Are you doing that? Is Christ your king? Do you honor him as Lord as you live your life in front of him? Fully exposed to him. Do you, do you live like the king is on the throne? And some of you may be asking, how do, sure, uh, how? How do I do that? Peter gives us some very practical answers here. The overarching answer is this. Christians live like the king is on the throne when they hope in God. And you see that all throughout this passage, 13 to 17 here, you see hoping in God. Hoping in God in the midst of potential unjust suffering. Sometimes we suffer unjustly. In the midst of people coming up and asking blunt questions, hoping in God. In the midst of those inner urges that are, that are, that are telling us, you know what, be harsh, be confrontational, be severe with this person. In the midst of the passions of the flesh, we've talked about those, welling up within us and knocking on the door of our hearts and our minds. In the midst of all kinds of other distractions that are out there, and they're demanding our attention, that we be all excited about them. In the midst of all those different things, let God be your hope. That's how you live like he's on the throne. This is how you honor Christ the Lord as holy in your hearts. You hope in him. You look to him. You rely on him. You revere him. Live your days in light of him. Let's break it down. Five ways we hope in God and thereby live like he's on the throne. Christians live like the king is on the throne when they have fearless hope. Fearless hope. Peter writes in verse 14, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be, nor be troubled. And normally, when we do something good, you don't expect that you're going to suffer for it, right? And that's why Peter writes, but even if. He's saying, in, in the remote possibility, it's possible that there will be times when you'll live in an upright way, in a righteous way, in a good way, in a, in a, in a holy way, 
and you'll end up suffering for it. But because you walk through life knowing that Christ is on the throne, well, you know that he's not only aware of the wrong things that are being done to you, but you also know he's going to make it right. We've read this before, Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. He's a God of justice, and so he's going to repay. But you know, Peter doesn't even mention that aspect here in this passage. He gives us a different reason that should put our fears to rest. And he says, don't worry about people who might harm you for doing right. Why, Peter? Why shouldn't we worry? Because you'll be blessed for it. You'll be blessed for it. Blessed, really? Well, how? Jesus said something very similar, didn't he? Matthew 5, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice. Be glad. Why? Because your reward is great in heaven. So they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Because of who you know Christ the King to be, because you know in your hearts that he sits on the throne, you can have a fearless hope. And when you have that fearless hope, you were honoring Christ the Lord as holy. You know that even though people may rise up against you, God is going to bless you for it. Well, what does that blessing look like? It could mean a number of different things. It could be that God is going to bless you with his protection. This doesn't always happen, but it could be that he blesses you in that sense. Someone comes after you, they try to harm you, God protects you from it, and that is a protection. Could be that the blessing that he's going to give you when you suffer is to develop in you some type of uh, uh, character quality. Like James talks about in James 1-2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That's, a, that's an incredible character quality. He says, let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. So there is a development, a blessing of development that can happen here when you suffer for doing good. It could be that through this suffering, God is going to hone your focus. He's going to set your eyes off of the things that really don't matter, and he's going to put them right on the things that matter, that are eternal. Maybe you realize you've been putting way too much hope on the good life here and now rather than focusing on the great life that he has promised you in the days ahead. Paul wrote, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look to the things that are seen, not, as we not look to the things that are seen, I just did what Joe did a little bit ago. <laughs> as we not look to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Finally, maybe, maybe the blessing is, is going to be come just in the form of a reward. Revelation 2. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, 
and I will give you the crown of life. When you, got, when you have that kind of fearless hope, it, it honors Christ as Lord. It honors him as holy. You're, you're recognizing, God, I, I am suffering here, and yet I know that you've got a plan going on here, and I'm part of this plan. I'm part of this kingdom, and I know that you're sovereign over all of this. You're in control of all this, and I know that you have revealed to me how this is all going to end, and that it's going to be for my good and for your glory, and, and, and so here I am. I'm going to be fearless here. Not in my own strength, not like I'm some type of awesome person, you're able to just stand up, be a superhero. No, because of you, because you're on the throne. I've got all kinds of challenges coming against me. You're on the throne. I'm going to live like you're on the throne. You honor Christ as king. The king is holy when you trust him through difficulty. Secondly, Christians live like the king is on the throne when they have grounded hope in God. Peter wrote in verse 15, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. That word for the defense there. In the Greek, it's the word apologia. It's where we get this word apologetics. And it doesn't mean to apologize for what you believe, as some people think, as if there's something to apologize for, right? No, it means to give an answer. Give an answer. It doesn't mean that you have to have all the answers. And so some of us are like, oh, great, now i got to go to seminary, now i got to go take that class over at Talbot, and i got to learn all this stuff, and then i got to somehow remember all of these arguments so that if perchance somebody comes up to me and asks me for an answer, I'm going to have all the, let me pull out my little slide presentation here. No, 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 that's not what we're talking about. It simply means when it comes to the hope that you have, the hope of your salvation you can tell people about it. You can tell people about it. You know, the hope that you have is not the Disney kind of hope. It's not that wish upon a, a star kind of hope that really has no basis in reality whatsoever. It's not that kind of hope. No, there is a grounded basis for this hope. You can tell them the basic story of humanity. All these people have value. Because they were created good. And yet they turned on this good creator. You can tell them of what that has done to us. You can point, can't you, to all around you at the effects that this has caused in our world. The hurt, the suffering. Probably much of which they are very upset about. You could talk about the need we have for forgiveness our inability to make ourselves right with God. Yeah, you think you, you're, you're doing all this good. You think it's going to fix things. It doesn't. You can't make yourself right with God by donating enough to charity or by doing enough little good things around the house or, or achieving enough and becoming an upstanding human being. No. You need the awesome gift of Jesus Christ who was fully God and fully man and paid for our sins with his own death on the cross. And you simply share that all that he accomplished is available for you. All you do is trust in it. That's a defense for the hope. 
It's simple. It's easy. All of this should be basic to us. And if it's not, boy, we need to wrap our heads around it. We need to know this because this fills our life. It fuels our life. It fills us with joy and hope, fearlessness. It's the basis for our hope. Your hope is grounded in that story. And as you prepare yourself to be able to share that with others, you're equipping yourself to what? To proclaim his excellencies as you were called to do, to fulfill your mission. And you're honoring him for who he truly is by testifying of who he really is to others. The victorious, the ruling, reigning king on the throne. If you care about him, then you care about what he came to do. And you care about the mission that he has given to you. So make sure that you can be the witness that he has called you to be by knowing these simple, grounded tenets of your hope. Do you know those? Fearless hope, grounded hope, meek hope. Peter writes, in your hearts, Honor Christ as Lord, the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that, you ha- that, that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. We've heard it before. Meekness does not mean weakness. Here, it's totally different. No, meekness is about having such a high regard for God and a trust in him to bring about all that he has promised that you don't need to take matters into your own hand, get all frustrated. You don't need to go postal on people. Meekness is about you recognizing God's rule and reign rather than feeling the need to exert your rule and reign. It's about his strength, not your strength or my strength. And so when you're talking to people who don't understand or don't know or maybe, maybe don't have any tolerance for this idea of Jesus Christ, this truth about him, you, so you don't fly off the handle. You don't get angry. You don't try to ram it down their throats. No. You give your answers with gentleness and respect. It's because you know who's on the throne. You know he's on the throne. And you also know that, that he's in control of all the salvation stuff. And any, any changes that are going to happen in these people's lives, change of mind, change of heart, well, that's all his business anyway. He's on the throne. Because he's the holy Lord, you have that kind of meek hope that enables you to do that. And as you do that, will you honor God as Lord in your hearts, as holy? You have such regard for him You don't have to get all riled because he's got this. Fearless hope, grounded hope, meek hope, pure hope. Peter continues, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. You know, conscience can be kind of a confusing idea. What is, what is this thing called conscience? And does it even fit into our theology here? Is it that little voice inside? Is it, is it the Holy Spirit? Or is it those two guys that sit on our shoulders, one in white, one in black? Is it, is it the, the uh, one in red, red and black? Is it that little cricket guy that's so annoying that, that keeps saying, always let your conscience be your guide? This thing called conscience, when it sits inside of us, 
It's the part of us, part of our personhood, that either declares us innocent or guilty, right? It's a sort of courtroom of the human heart. It's a part of us that reminds us of what we know to be right or wrong, and it, it, it predicates its, its judgment based upon what we know to be right or wrong. But it's only able to do that insofar that it, it perceives one thing to be true or right or good or, or wrong. And so it's completely possible to have a conscience that tells a person that what is actually good is wrong. And what is wrong is actually Good, isn't it? There's people's consciences telling them to do all sorts of different things. All sorts of different things. And, and that's why there's such a thing as a good conscience and, and a bad conscience. A good conscience is informed by God's perfect standards. That's what happens when a person trusts in Jesus Christ. They, and they start learning all that he has commanded, right? Matthew 28, that's why it's so important to teach everything that he commanded. Not only is their slate wiped clean because of the blood of Jesus, all the guilt, all the, all the shame, and all the stink of their sin is done away with, but also the light, the light of Christ begins to shine on their lives, and his righteousness becomes clearer. And so Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.5, he said, the aim of our charge of our, of our teaching, Timothy, you and I, is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So we're living in a society that has developed a very, very bad conscience when it comes to love. Their hearts are telling them that to, to love somebody is to go along and to celebrate anything that that particular person believes in their heart or, or is in line with their heart's desires. That's not biblical love. That's not God's love. True love, every time I say that, I go back to that Princess Bride movie. It's just, get out of my mind. True love is intrinsically tied to truth. You don't love someone by affirming what is untrue because that's not love. On the contrary, you love someone by helping them see what is true. A good conscience, it'll be rightly informed and it will tell you that. Paul said the reason that we're, we're teaching, the aim of our teaching, it's to promote love that comes from a pure heart and a good conscience. As he and Timothy teach God's word, his truth to people, their consciences are going to be made good. And real love is going to start flowing out of that. And so a good conscience is properly informed, but then a good conscience is also a clear conscience. We're familiar with that term, right? A clear conscience. So Peter says, have good consciences. And that means that in light of what we know to be true in God's word, we should live our lives. We should live lives that leave our good truth-informed consciences telling us 
that we're actually doing what is right. Let me say that again because that's a complicated sentence. That means that in light of what we know to be true in God's word, we should live lives that leave our good, truth-informed consciences telling us that we're doing what is right. The courtroom of our hearts, it tells us, you know what? I know God's word, and you're innocent. Your clear conscience. Keep on going. Keep on doing it. We're to live lives like the king is on the throne. Our hope is in him. We know who he is. We know what he's done for us on the cross. We know that we've been saved to say no to sin and yes to him. And that leaves us living in purity. If we live in purity, then people can say all sorts of different things about us. But one day, they're going to be proven wrong. When they stand before the throne, they will be proven wrong. Living in purity honors Christ the Lord as holy. Finally, Christians live like the king is on the throne when they have zealous hope. And this takes us all the way back to verse 13, the very beginning here. He says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Well, what is good? It's, it's things like the Spirit of God produces in a Christian when he's living in there. And that Christian is taking in God's word and the Holy Spirit is moving this stuff into practice in their lives. And he's producing in them things like love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. You could add things to that list. You could say unselfishness, thoughtfulness, generosity. No law against these things. Why is there no law against these things? Well, because they're good. Duh. (laughs) Who is there to harm you if you're doing these kinds of things? Well, probably not too many people because these things are good. But notice the the word that Peter uses to, to describe your stance towards these things. He uses that word zealous. Zealous. The word that means intense, enthusiastic, passionate about something. The people who were passionate for Israel breaking free from Rome, throwing off the shackles of, of Roman rule, they were known as the zealots. And it was the right name for them because they would stop at nothing. They would uh, uh, stoop to uh, any level to make sure that that was going to happen, even if it meant sacrificing their own lives. They were zealous for their mission. And that's the kind of a devotion Peter is expecting to see out of Christians, the Christians he's writing to. They're zealous for what is good. Are you zealous for what is good? I like what is good. I want to see good things happen. We wave the banner and say, glory to God, good to his people, but am I zealous about it? It's the kind of thing that's produced when we actually believe that Jesus Christ, the king, is ruling on the throne. We're excited about his mission, his life, his, his light, his salvation, his kingship is what we're all about. And so we live lives eagerly seeking to do what he saved us to do. 
Paul said, you're created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And so we live out our calling as image bearers of the creator, ambassadors of the king, as we bring good to his people. As we zealously bring good to his people, we demonstrate that our hope is in him, the holy one, the one who's ruling as Lord and king. Is Christ your king? I'm not talking about when we, we just sit here together in this room and we sing and we listen. Is he honored as the king of kings and the Lord of lords and revered, revered as holy deep down in our innermost being? Friends, that, that's what our hope in Christ is supposed to produce. So, so let's pray to that end. Let's pray for each other to that end. We, we love praying for, for all of life's problems and the health issues, and it's right and we should. But we need to be praying that the fruit of the Spirit is produced in our lives. And let's live our lives in this present hostile world in light of the fact that the king really is on the throne. Let's have fearless hope, grounded hope, meek hope, pure hope, and zealous hope. Be it in joy or sorrow, success or suffering, with knees bowed and hearts surrendered, may we say with one voice, it is an honor to serve the king. Father, it is an honor to serve you. And Lord, we confess that there are moments, many moments, where we give in to fear, where we forget the grounding of our faith, where we do not yield to your strength, but we do everything in our strength, even if it means pushing people around or just using strong words to convince them that we're right and they're wrong. And Father, we are, we are not always living in purity. And Lord, our consciences are seared. As Lord, we so often know the right thing to do and so very often don't do that very thing. In fact, sometimes we're running after the things that we know are not honoring to you. We confess that to you, Lord. And we confess, Lord, that we are not always zealous for good works. So often we are just thinking about our needs, our lack of sleep, our mental state, our frustrating day. Lord, bring us back to yourself. Bring us back to the foot of the cross, our one and only hope, but also to the foot of the throne where we see you gloriously, victoriously reigning and ruling as our king, the king of all things, all kings, all nations, all that is in existence, and may we live our lives in light of that. We love you. We thank you. 
it is an honor to serve you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.